if you don't have a trinitarian god you can't have a god who is love that's right you might you might have a god who loves that's right possibly uh, but if you have a god who is love um, and you have a you have a, a finite creation you have a huge problem Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here as always with Matt Kennedy of the Church of the Good Shepherd Anglican in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Doing great, Nick. Good. Anybody preaching this week? It's uh, Curate Sunday. That's you for sure, J.D., right? That's right. That's right. Heresy Sunday is what they... Matt, are you having an associate preach? Actually, the bishop is visiting us this Sunday. Nice. Nice. I'll be out of town myself. Right, right. (laughs) He gets to commit to heresy. Nice. That's right. Well, way back in episode three of this podcast, probably brought to mind by Trinity Sunday, which is this upcoming Sunday, we talked about the Holy Spirit. It's Trinity Sunday again. And again, the Trinity is on our minds. This time, though, we thought we'd talk about the Trinity proper, not just the Spirit. How does the Spirit relate to the Father and the Son, the Son to the Father, and all of the various inner workings therein? We're even planning on talking a bit about the controversial doctrine called eternal submission of the Son, the idea that Jesus was submissive to God the Father in eternity, not just while he was on earth accomplishing our salvation. Now, as longtime listeners will know, we love to couch these discussions in the 39 articles when we can. So I'm going to read article one called Of Faith in the Holy Trinity, and then we'll get into our discussion. Here you go. Article one. There is but one living and true God, the article says, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in unity of this Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, pretty simple, and yet with very complex implications. Maybe we start here. The word Trinity famously does not appear in the Bible. How do we know that our God is like this? Well, when you read the New Testament, you have uh, Jesus who claims to be God and is claimed by the apostles to be God, who uh, who prays to his father, um, who is also God. And he sends the spirit who we see in several places, uh, the father and the son send the spirit who we see in several places, Acts chapter five being one just that popped into my head, uh, who is also God. So when Ananias and Sapphira tried to uh, pull a fast one past the church in Acts chapter five, uh, Peter says, uh, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And then almost the very next sentence, he says, you've not lied to men, but lied to God. So we have clear testimonies throughout scripture that both the father, that all three, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit are God. And yet also uh, Jesus is equally clear and, 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 not just Jesus, but all through the scriptures, we have the declaration, there is only one God and no other. So the, the New Testament does not teach tritheism. It teaches, it teaches that within the one God, there are three persons. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the original speculation began, um, I mean, apace, when Jesus began being worshipped upon his resurrection as God. And so these were by, you know, monotheistic Jews who had come to believe that Jesus was my Lord and my God, as Thomas famously exclaimed. And then, of course, there was so many, um, well, centuries of reflection on what that could possibly mean. But it was always bounded by 
the proclamation that Jesus is Lord and God, that there is a worship of this man, Jesus. Um, and so the, you know, that there needed to be some um, sort of theological speculation and kind of uh, framework put around um, what we now understand to be the doctrine of the Trinity uh, makes sense because it took a while for people to get their heads around what was being said. And then, of course, we needed um, people to, to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be brought to mind um, and the Holy, the Holy Scriptures illumined. You know, the Old Testament, we're, we're grateful for Peter and Paul and for uh, the apostles in the New Testament that began to further expound upon this about the power of the Spirit to bring to light the saving faith of Christ, who was the, um, you know, the propitiatory uh, sacrifice sacrifice for reconciliation with the father. And then you begin this, this, you know, I liken it to a divine fugue, you know, this wonderful sort of interplay of the three persons that you have the, um, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sort of um, interacting with each other from time immemorial about creation, redemption, and restoration, and sort of this um, this beautiful um, act of redemption that is the, as it were, the sort of economic trinity itself, like the work of God in the world through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so I think it's, it's you know, th- to say that it's not explicit in the New Testament is to say that is, is really just an ignorant thing to say, um, because yes, the actual word is not there, but there are many doctrines and many um, aspects of the Christian faith that are uh, gleaned from the scriptures and are in fact attested to by the scriptures. And this is certainly um, the chief among them, um, I think, is that that we are not tritheists. We're not um, monotheists in the sense of we do not, we don't believe in um, just a, a God um, and then, you know, um, other variations on it. But we have this this incredibly complex and beautiful and, and in fact divine revelation of God, colon, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You just used the word or the phrase, I should say, economic trinity. Can you explain exactly what you mean when you say that? And if there are other kinds of trinities, what those might be? Yeah, I mean, you can jump in, Matt. But from my understanding, I'm not sure whether the term was coined. I know that Karl Rahner, um, it, it became a pace, but I know Karl Barth talked about it and things. The, but essentially, the economic trinity is just what the action of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in the world is. What is the, what is the actual um, sort of revelatory um, action, his economy in the world. So Father, you know, you can hear the Father, the Creator, the Son, the Reconciler, and the Holy Spirit, the Redeemer. This is um, this is essentially what what God does in the world is the economic Trinity. Now, the Eminent Trinity um, is a Trinity in and of itself in Ipse, and it's um, uh, not it, it's le- it's more speculative. I think that's safe to say because the inner workings of God Himself from you know eternity past. We should we should approach that question with fear and trembling, I believe, because it's um, uh, well, I think there are aspects of it that are are hidden from our finite um, consideration. That's and yet here at Sunday, that's exactly. And yet we can definitely say that, you know, that the father as the father, you know, Jesus says in John, you know, glorify me with the glory that we had before the foundations of the world. You know, that there was a relationship of father, son and Holy Spirit, a giving, loving mutually reciprocal relationship uh, that is the basis of, of reality, essentially, if we understand God, um, how we understand God. And so that's the in the imminent Trinity and the relationship between the two has always been a, a subject um, or is often a subject of discussion because you can go back and forth and sort of posit them against each other. And then you can sort of take the Karl Rahner, you know, um, idea and and sort of subsume them into each other you know the economic is the imminent and the imminent is the economic and um and there's a variety of ways to look at it but ultimately it boils down to a reflection on what god has done 
in the world in his son and then who God is um, from time uh, eternity past. And it's um, has uh, spilled no uh, billions of gallons, no few billions of gallons of ink um, ever since, because it is um, well, it's a worthy it's a worthy endeavor to consider these questions with with um, appropriate all struck uh, fear and trembling, I believe. Following up on your point about that being the, the, the distinction between the imminent and the economic opportunity being a source of great debate. I mean, you, you if you take the Ron or Ronarian approach and say what you see or how you see the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, Spirit interacting in the pages of Scripture is necessarily going to tell us exactly how they've interacted eternally um, and imminently, then okay, well then there's there's some potential problems with that, you know, because because you 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 then have to make some distinctions between okay, what's proper to Jesus's humanity, what's proper to his divinity, and and right. and, and even so, could we say that the way that God is acting in the in the in the mode of, or the way that God is acting in his redemptive work, uh, necessarily also is the way that he within himself relates. And and you can't say that with this necessity. But the other side is equally problematic because if you if you if you if the imminent trinity is unknowable utterly, I mean, right? It, it, then then we can't really say anything about it at all. We just we just we just be silent and <laughs> not say a thing. Um, but nobody really wants to do that, and and we shouldn't. I mean, I, I think that's I think that's too. I think that removes the question far beyond where God would have us remove it because He clearly has made Himself known. He, he, right. The purpose of revelation is that we might come to know him and as to the extent that our finite minds can but I, I i don't see any basis in scripture for drawing an arbitrary line and saying there's nothing about the economic work of the, or the economic relationships that uh that we can extrapolate into the the imminent relationships yeah i mean you could look at this a little bit like one of the classic um uh, distinctions of various ways of doing theology is either from, i.e., the um, what's known as the top down or the bottom up. You know, like um, if you begin from the top down, you have a conception of we could use this argument, the imminent Trinity. We have an idea, sort of a speculation about how God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interact um, from the top, and then we sort of build that down through through uh, the rest of our theology. The flip side of that um, is bottom up, where we, like you said before, begin with the economic and say, well, this is what God has done, and therefore we will extrapolate upwards to this. And I have to say, I've personally been very um, impacted. That's not, I don't like when people use it. I have had a man who has had a great impact on my life. That's right. I mean, there's been an impact and impinction on my life um, <laughs> too. Uh, by a man named Oswald Bayer, uh, who is a German Lutheran about whom I wrote uh, part of my dissertation, uh, my doctorate. And um, he interacted, he has interacted uh, very directly with a lot of um, sort of he would call the, not, the new Trinitarian um, theologians. And he actually dismisses um, sort of this kind of uh, abject speculation. He calls it in one of his books as, quote, one of the most grandiose blunders of the more recent history of both philosophy and theology, which is to begin to um, to begin with a sort of speculation about the doctrine of God, as it were, from the top down. And, and again, you could argue with that or not, but I can just confess to having been, he's had a lot of influence on me because what he argues is that we shouldn't necessarily start with a top down or a bottom up, but as it were, uh, for lack of a better word, a cross out, a Christocentric sort of epistemic 
boundary point for when we begin to question the the reality or, or begin to speculate about both the economic and the imminent trinity. Because what the cross brings about, what the cross reveals is both a limitation um, and a judgment on our humanity, but also a revelation and a um, exaltation of God. You know, Luther begins his um, statement of theology in the same place Calvin does. You know, Calvin begins in his institutes and says, theology proper is the study of God and the study of man, right? And that's true. That's true insofar as it goes. But Luther, and I think Luther's correct in this. I don't think it's a, I don't think, I love uh, lots of what Calvin wrote, but I think in this particular case, Luther is more precise um, with respect to what we're talking about now, because he says that the study of theology is not just the study of God and man, but two very particular um, sort of adjectives, the sinful humanity and the justifying God. And that is the entire boundary of theology, is that there is a God who justifies the sinful human. And so that begins to put a bound, a boundary on our Trinitarian speculation on our on our on our um, understandings of the atonement on our understandings of anthropology like every doctrine is run through that sieve and that is too uh, sort of particular for some theologians because what it does is it limits what you can say about the imminent trinity or the economic trinity because you know there are all sorts of things the holy spirit is doing in the world but we are unaware of a lot of it or at least we've not been given um knowledge of a lot of of it other than what he has done through christ to save or to bring people into a saving relationship with god i mean this is why it's an ultimately an evangelistic boundary that uh, luther is, is putting around the the speculation now again that doesn't mean that that it's not a um, worthy endeavor to to speculate and to theologize and to consider, but to stop short of saying of building a theology around what hasn't been revealed in the the death and resurrection of Christ, and that that was for me at the very least has been a very helpful um, sort of limiting uh, factor because what it does is it forces all of the speculation about the Trinity back into proclamation because you begin to say you know, God in himself is somewhat unknowable, but God in what he has done as the father of Christ in the world is, is eminently knowable. And in fact, um, you know, worthy of, of all honor, glory, and, and power, because in his majesty, he has con, uh, condescended to, to save. And so how do we know that by the power of the spirit, not just the ephemeral nameless, um, you know, uh, sort of power, but this, the Holy spirit who emanates, you know, from the father and the son and with the father and the son is worshiped and glorified. This is that very spirit. And so do you see how it, it works together in a way that I think that, that helps uh, sort of limit our otherwise sinful pretensions to, to, well, to be like God, to, to know it all and to, and to construct a theological framework that, that answers all of my questions and brings up all of yours short. You know, that's, that seems to be what happens often. But, you know, interestingly, I mean, tur- turning back to, so that brings up a question, I guess, turning back yeah, to our, sure. the article you see categories, at least in that first sentence. Uh, I'll just read it again. There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things visible and invisible. At least some of those descriptions, without body, body parts, or passions, I guess maybe in particular, well, I'll just use those, yes. seem to come you know, from, and I think the critics of you know, classical theism 
would say that comes from you know Greek philosophy, right, right, um, and and so the, the the writers of our article at least weren't using merely a cruciform. Yes, they would they would say merely a cruciform understanding of the Trinity. They were they were they were continuing the I think the pattern that that the fathers established of of borrowing concepts and applying them to God. Do you see that as problematic? I, I don't know. I, I I'm I'm I yes become, and no. Yes and no. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a Lutheran, so I mean, I wouldn't um, and I do affirm the Theranon articles and I and I don't have a problem with that insofar as they are a helpful um, governor on our pretension and speculation to continue to bring back to the sort of the proclamatory aspect of all of the theology. You know, it's like Gerhard Ferdi famously wrote a book called Theology is for Proclamation. You know, if it doesn't if it doesn't if it doesn't lead you to preaching then i'm not saying it's not wrong uh but i think that that's not it's it's not um as fruitful um a theological sort of proposition as it otherwise could be yeah and i think you know i've seen this before though because i got into a discussion um well there's a book called martin luther and the trinity by a woman named christine helmer which is really quite interesting and um it's one long discussion about the ways that people who emphasize the, as it were, evangelistic nature, the cruciform nature of Luther's um, insight have missed some of the um, philosophical and sort of um, the the theological fruitfulness of more um, abstract ruminations on the Trinity. And so there's this, there's this divide about whether people see a distinction um, between, you know, all all sorts of distinctions, law and gospel, you know, all these binaries, you know, that that have all these edges um, over against the, the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which of course is what we profess, but but how that unity is is understood, you know, Gerhard Abeling was uh, famous for saying this. He said, you know, there's a difference between people who can simply state that there is a unity in God and sort of just run with this and, and over against people who see that there's, there's seemingly a great rupture um, between, between the love of God and the wrath of God. And there's all these, there's all these divisions there are all these, what Bayer would call for ruptures, you know, there's, there's justice and mercy, there's law and gospel, there's, there's, um, you know, wrath and love. There are all these that are binaries that are overcome by faith. I mean, they are transcended not by speculation, but by proclamation. And I think this is where I at least have have landed in my own life because I I have um, read, um, you know, Torrance. I mean, you read these Trinitarian um, sort of expositions of of the way that it works, right? Like uh, like Robert Jensen has this book. It's one of his first books. I forget was an ex was a critique of Bardian theology, uh, which he was a Bardian in many ways, but he, he wrote a book and he said, essentially the, the critique at the end was that instead of saying in order that, you know, it all made sense in this theology, like this happened in order that that would happen in order that that would happen in order that that would happen. He says, I wish that he had simply had uh, put the cross because, because for the person who is faithless or is wrestling with unbelief or who is, who is, um, you know, in the middle of the wind and waves of, of the despair of life, explaining the inner workings of the imminent Trinity to them is not going to, uh, is not going to save, is not going to, but proclaiming God, the father who so loved the world that sent his son to save and by the power of the Holy spirit be brought into a redeeming life, giving fellowship with him uh, through grace alone, by faith alone, mercy. I mean, this is the, the proclamation over against the speculation, I think is what, um, is at very least what, what Bayer was reacting to. Now, of course, we end up at the end, just like when Karl Barth wrote his famous or infamous uh, gospel and law book, uh, sort of essay, which, which was a critique, direct critique of law and gospel. And it started this kind of worldwide debate. Even when they responded to him, he said, well, 
you know, maybe, maybe I could have been clear and maybe some of my questions haven't been answered, but you haven't done a very good job really of, of answering them either. <laughs> so, you know, basically it was an admission that, yes, uh, we're still talking about this because it's, it's quite complex and there's a lot to be, um, to be unpacked. So, so far be it for me to think that we've reached the definitive word on it, but I do think that there are helpful, um, I think that, that like the creed itself, there are helpful boundary markers or buoys or channel markers, whatever you want to call it, that, that keep the conversation within the, within the framework of what we're talking about. And for me, the cruciform, sort of epistemic cruciform limiting factor has been a very helpful one. You know, I'm sure people have different ones, or in fact, I know they do. But, but for me, that seems to, um, to at least ensure that the theologizing will always lead towards uh, preaching. I think we can all agree that the Trinity is like water, depending on the temperature. It's either liquid, <laughs> steam, or solid, right? I thought it was like a shamrock. Uh, you know, the um, yeah, or, or an egg. Or sometimes, you know, God is like a father, and sometimes he's like a son. Right. But I think, really, really, but I was, really I've been thinking about this a lot because I, really. I've been preaching about this is that. You know, the Trinity is such, it, it seems like it's such a mystery, but if you really look into it, given the reality of human existence, so God, God created us, he knows who, you know, he knows who we are, obviously. And so think about the problems when God is not a Trinity, um, when creatures who are, who are, you know, we have sensus divinitatus, as the Puritans would say, we, are, we have the sense of God about us because we're in his image and yet we're fallen. So we project and create our own ideas of God, right? So if we only have a God, then this God becomes like the Schopenhauer and, you know, um, sort of macht, you know, just power God. Like it becomes God, you know, of, of the thunderbolt and the lightning. And, and we see this throughout history, right? Then if we have just the spirit God, you know, the spirit God uh, takes whatever wind it will, you know, and is, is um, you know, harnessed by throwing chicken bones around or, or doing, he casting um, hexes or whatever the case may be. If that's all we have as God, and yet God in his sovereignty revealed himself as who he is, which is actually that which, which puts form and function to our, to our lives, which is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the God of all power is bounded by, by what he has done in and through his Son, and the Spirit is then determined by his relationship to the two, and it begins to, to mark reality itself. You know, love um, for us is not an, an idea, but a, but a re relationship, a reality. Um, and then, of course, we begin to see that emanate throughout the restoration of the world by Christ, you know, begins to, to reconcile and, you know, glorify me with the glory that we had before all this began. And we begin to see vestiges of that glory by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit through the redemption of the world, um, which brings us back into reflecting and mirroring the, the, the basis of God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I mean, it's really well, quite, if, if you quite don't beautiful. Have a, if you don't have a Trinitarian God, you can't have a God who is love. That's right. You might, you might have a God who loves. That's right. Possibly. Uh, but if you have a God who is love um, and you have, a, you have a, a finite creation, you have a huge problem because what That's was right. God doing before, <laughs> before creation? That's right. Uh, if, if he is Sudoku. love, he has always been love. <laughs> he was doing... Well, it may also mean that, that the creation was a necessity, like that God had to create. That's right. Because, in order to be a God of love, he had yeah, to create had something right, love, right, which is um, right. Whereas, and that does away with his, with his uh, inner contentment within himself. But it really is quite, it's, it's quite beautiful. I mean, it really, you know, and it's, yeah. it is, 
it is something that requires some thought and far, you know, we haven't thought all the thoughts, but we are thinking behind, you know, and in, in light of the scriptures. And it is, it is quite remarkable to see how sufficient, um, you know, for our, for our salvation, you know, God has revealed himself to be um, because it begins to not simply be a, a reality of who he is, but it begins to be the framework for the reality that we experience. We actually experience as, as, as our own, which is, um, which is, which is, well, worthy of worship, you know, glory, laud, and honor. <laughs> That's where we are. You guys want to talk ESS for a second? Sure. Let's do it. So we're, we're all three very important people. And so we have a little bit less time this week than we have had in previous episodes, but we wanted to address this because what started out seemingly as a re- relatively esoteric fight or discussion within evangelicalism in the summer of 2016, Drs. Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware suggested this idea that Jesus had been submissive to the will of the Father through all eternity, not just as we see him, for instance, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he says, not my will, but yours be done. The idea that he had been submissive in this way from all eternity, therefore ESS, the eternal submission of the Son, has sort of been jerked into the more mainstream evangelical conversation, because it is sometimes talked about in terms of the roles of men and women in the church and family. And when Jesus and the church are compared to husband and wife, we start to wonder about the relationship between Jesus and the father in eternity past. So does one of you want to give a quick summation of what the idea of eternal submission of the son is, and then um, what it means for the truth of the good news, if anything? Yeah, I, I can go further back, though, than, than Grudem and, and those guys, because it really starts in the 20th century with the kind of the emergence of the idea of a social trinity, where, where you have um, where the focus begins to be on the interrelationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and what that means, what, what, and the social implications for that. So so the the progressive side, um, all kinds of applications of the, the interplay of love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been used to support, you know, social justice ideas, I mean, I remember going to seminary and hearing just exhaustive lectures about the paracritic dance. And I was just, yes. <laughs> it's exhausting. Yeah. Right, right. So so from that context of maybe Moltmann, if you've already Moltmann on, on, yeah. on the, the social... I'd, social Trinitarianism. Social yeah. Trinitarianism. There is a kind of 20th century context to this discussion of the relationship of the of the, of the persons in their eminence. And, Which, just as um, a note, is fascinating because the, the critiques uh, of sort of hijacking the Trinity for, you know, pri- previously held um, theological convictions is is well documented, um, yeah, as you just right. pointed out, on, on as we could use to say progressive side. So it's it's a little it's either out of ignorance or it's just just sort of rank hypocrisy when people complain that this is, you know, clutch pearls and say this how dare you consider this bruce ware or wayne grudem because it's as if it's never been done i mean this again i'll I'll get to why i think that's a problem but i mean i think that's a really helpful insight matt so continue i I didn't mean to interrupt so so the uh wayne grudem and and bruce ware have argued that the submission of the son to the father that you see in the pages of the New Testament and the economic in their economic relationship is also reflected eternally in their imminent relationship. Um, and so it, without without any kind of implication that the son's uh, submission to the inferior. father, it makes him in any way. Yeah, ontologically, ontologically inferior. He's he's he, they're co-equal. 
but there has been from eternity past a willed submission of the son to the will of the father in that they're both in agreement um, and saying, yeah, I know the, they're both being, is being pro, <laughs> problematic in itself, but there's a, the, the father and the son have agreed in the son's submission. As evidence of that, I mean, uh, they all point to, you know, particularly the gospel of John, where, where Jesus does speak of his pre-existence relation, pre-incarnation relationship with the, not pre-existence, pre-incarnation relationship with the father. And it, it does seem in some texts that that there, there was a kind of sending that the father did to the son, the son obeyed. That does seem to, to indicate a relationship of that sort uh, before and beyond just the redemptive act. So that's, that's the basis of the argument. And of course the critic critic critique of it is, is, and, and I understand it's, it's a, it's an important and interesting critique. Uh, it's twofold. Uh, one, of course, is that the, the, this, if you have a functional subordination, you can't keep it from ultimately leading to a ontological subordination, which would be heresy. But then, but then, secondly, the the question of the will of God, um, which classically we would always want to say there's not a distinct, there's no, there's not three wills. Um, there, there's one will, and the, the the Father has a will, the Son has a will, the, the Holy Spirit has a will, but it's one will. It's not, they're not distinct. They're not, they're not separate wills. They're not so, fighting with each other about what to do. Yeah, you know, arguing, uh, gee, you know, Father, what should I do here? I don't know. I don't really don't want to do this. All right, okay. I'll obey. Yeah, they just uh, flipped a coin up in heaven to see who well, was. Well, luckily there's three. There's always a deciding vote. That's right. <laughs> right. So, so is it possible to have an eternally submissive Son and yet also still have one will in, in, in God. And so that's, that's really where the, the argument centers. One more, one more area where, where this is, has come to the fore of late, and that's the question of the begottenness of the Son, the eternal begottenness of the Son. Where the, the scriptures, I think, do use that language of, of son, the Son being begotten of the Father, uh, but because he's an eternal person, that must be an eternal kind of begetting. Um, however, that works. And with that, what that, that language does is safeguard that he's of one essence with the Father, um, and yet also distinct um, from him. Uh, for I feel a like while, we should be we should be singing this entire conversation. Or the, like we <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna chanting. spend the entire time we, we have be. left just explaining what it is we're going to talk about. Right, right. I mean, for, are... for a while, for a while, uh, Bruce Ware and and, Bruce, and Wayne Grudem denied denied that they denied the, the eternal begottenness of of the Son. If I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, they agree that they've recently switched, or at least Grudem has recently come around to, to accepting that. But also then arguing, well, the eternal begottenness of the Son actually supports our point; it doesn't hinder it. So I think that's where the debate yeah. is right now. Yeah, I actually find the debate fascinating. And, and at its most charitable, um, it's actually what the church should be involved in. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a discussion. It's a hammering out of issues. And, and like all Trinitarian debates throughout history, it has been precipitated by a um, sort, of, a sort of embodied cultural conflict, uh, which, you know, the, in the initial point was Arianism and sort of the fight between that and how do we understand the preexistent Christ and was he the first creature and things like this. And then, of course, had the authority of Scripture, you know, how is the this, um, how do we interpret all this? And then the current debate about anthropology, you know, just what it means to be a, a human being uh, creating the image of God, male and female, and all that that entails. Well, it's not surprising that it will re- sort of revive um, Trinitarian debates because this this is what we do. And so I think, you know, what I have been disappointed by just in general is that people saying, 
either, you know, just dismissive of the complexity of the argument and, you know, someone misstate, misspeaks or even is in error and then is corrected and say, well, you're right, that's a good point. You know, you make a fair point. I think I should probably change that up a little bit. I mean, that's ideally how it works. But fundamentally, as far as I can tell, there is a there's a sort of watershed issue surrounding the question of whether or not you can be legitimately ontologically equal and yet one of the two parties submissive, uh, whether that's from eternity past and God himself, or if that's between men and women or just between two people, much less men and women. Um, and if you have, if it is impossible for you to consider a relationship where someone is a hundred percent equal and of the same will and yet submissive voluntarily to another um, out of, we could say, whatever it is, if that, if that is an, if it's impossible for you to consider that relationship without it being seen as a, a lesser than relationship or a subjugation of the person to, to a uh, secondary status, well, then, then you're not going to be able to hear any of the arguments um, from Ware or Grudem or, or for, for any, um, anyone that sides with them for that matter you're as anything other than. Well, 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 that's another issue. But, but I'm just saying from a, from a, from a, from a theological standpoint, right. it's a non-starter. And that, that seems to be what always comes back to is that there is a implication uh, stated and, and un, often unstated that this is simply a projection of a uh, pre-existent um, sort of, well, often patriarchal power structure onto the person of God himself that is irredeemably uh, sexist and, um, and oppressive. And so any arguments to the contrary, however eloquent and learned they are, are simply various forms of the same patriarchal her- heresy. And that's that's been the difficult. I think we've come up to the end of the fruitfulness of the discussion at this point, because if, if that's, if that's the divide, well, then I don't know what short of a conversion onto one side or the other it will take uh, for people to read it differently, because, you know, pretty much what has been said has been um, exhaustive on this issue. And it still comes down to the question of whether or not someone could be considered equal and equally valued and obviously ontologically sort of on the same level and yet one submissive to the other, which of course has implications for, you know, male-female relationships or historically speaking, married husband and wife relationships, you know, ch- parent-child relationships, um, you know, like you said, Matt, boss and uh, employee relationships. And and so there we are. I think that's, that's and, and I'm not the only one who noticed that. I simply standing on the shoulders of people like Alistair Roberts was commenting on that. I think Denny Burke, you know, trying to play the referee and all this between the various camps has sort of pointed this out. And it's at the very least through all of the conflict, we have seen emerging some clear divides. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that at the very least, because out of the conflict sometimes just simply comes more smoke. But I think in this case, we're getting to see some, the smoke is, is, um, is sort of uh, dissipating and we're seeing some, some clear lines and hopefully they won't be, um, you know, militarized lines, you know, but, but they are clear and beginning to, um, to sort of uh, get more defined. I have a cool, quick clarification question. So is the economic Trinity separatable enough from the imminent Trinity for people who would oppose ESS to just say, well, sure, Jesus is submissive to the father while he's on earth, but because he's also 100% human at the same time as he's 100% God, that doesn't count in some way? They, yeah, I mean, I think they would tend to relegate any submissiveness to in the son to his human Yes his human nature. Okay. And the question, 
the question I have then, and I need to do some more reading on this. I mean, it's a fascinating issue is, um, you know, what is, what are the distinctions pre-incarnate, pre-incarnate Christ there? Like, what are the distinctions? You know, not that we necessarily would have a definitive statement, but, you know, it doesn't ever seem to be the case that the father was considered to be incarnate over the son, you know, or the Holy Spirit. You know, there does seem to be an economy to the eminence of the Trinity that is mirrored, in fact, maybe not one-to-one, but that there is, a, I mean, even in the even in the appellations of father and son, if you look from the scripture and then what that's mapped onto reality, no one ever thinks the son is greater than the father in a sort of a in a hierarchical relationship. You know, I mean, there have been sons who have pretended to be, who have had pretensions over against their father, and that's part of our sinful nature. But you know, honor your father and mother. It's not honor your son or honor your spirit. Again, I mean, that that's not to make light of any of these of these arguments, except for the fact that that they're trying to extrapolate from what seems to be revealed in scripture back into the imminent Trinity with respect to the relationship between Christ and his father. You know, in my argument would be, again, I don't, I don't, I think that, well, my argument would be at the very least that, that whatever camp is trying to, to work with what we've been given and then, and then gingerly hold some speculation of what is, is in, in fact a mystery, i.e. the imminent Trinity, you know, making sense of Jesus's stated relationship with his father on earth as if, as if that has no eternal significance to how they are eternally related, I think is, seems to be begging the question, or at least seems to be stating more than what we have been given to. Well, then, well, then I would put it this way. How, where's the end of that speculation? You know, I mean, if that's, I mean, why not the father, you know, is it, did they just flip coins up in heaven and see who, you know, who's going to, whose will is going to be glorified in whom and let's, um, you know, cast lots and, um, and see who goes like, doesn't seem to be what happened. I mean, for the glory set before him, Christ endured the cross, you know, to bring glory. And what was that glory, the glory of, of, of his father, you know, the, 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 the glory before that he had with the father before, before the foundations of the earth. And this is, again, that's why, that's where I think that there's a, but when we, we have, we work from what we've been given back to what we can speculate upon. And there is imminent, there's, there's, there's tons of, of uh, scriptural warrant to at least consider the fact that something of the, the hierarchical the one, and I'm going to say hierarchical, but the, the loving equal mutually self serving submissive relationship that Jesus has for his father, there might be something to that in the imminent Trinity itself. Um, and I think that's, essentially what Ware and, and, and Grudem are at least uh, well, arguing. Yeah. I think it's important to be cautious, though. I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the people who have used the social trinity uh, badly have gone on to question things like God's passibility, I mean, impassibility. Right. So, so, you know, God, because God's in the cross, God right. can't be immutable. He can't, he can't, he can, he can suffer in his, in his essence. And and so there's there's a, there's that way leads to error and right. if you go too far down that road right so we've got to be careful to keep the distinction between what is proper to his deity and what's proper to his humanity in in, in view um, when we're talking about the work of Christ and his relationship with the Father so I heard uh, this morning I was listening to a podcast and I heard uh, Matthew Barrett he wrote a book called Simply Trinity he was being interviewed by by Jordan Cooper and he was saying well one of the problems with extrapolating into the imminent Trinity, the relationship of submission that you see with within the economy is that you lose the you lose the glory of the of of, of Christ's humility, you know Christ taking on it down. Yeah, I mean if he's, yeah. if he's always okay. been submitting, yeah. 
what's he I mean what does it mean when Hebrew says that he had to learn learn obedience or, or what does it mean um, when uh, when when the when the, the hymn and in, in Philippians two talks about his you know self emptying, yeah. how does that how does that work? If he's always been like that, what's the, what's the big deal? Yeah. Um, yeah. That's what Mr. Matthew Barrett would argue. However, I don't see that necessarily as I, I kind of disagree with him on that because to say that the Son as God, who's ontologically equal with God, is eternally submitted to the Father. Yeah, that's that's true. It, it's, it, there's there's always a kind of a humble relationship there, but to let go of the prerogatives of the glory of heaven, and and be yeah, and endure the suffering the even unto a cross. That's right. right. I mean, I I still think that's quite a step down. You know, <laughs> that's, that's quite a that's that's quite a that's quite a humbling move, uh, an infinitely humbling move to to do that. So I don't think I I think the argument is interesting, but I don't think it has the the weight that that uh, Jordan Cooper gave to it. I think fundamentally, I am uncomfortable, I think, grounding, like I said before, entire theological systems in the in the inner workings of the imminent Trinity. Um, I am much more comfortable arguing from the scripture what I think this could possibly be in the imminent Trinity itself. And yet, finally, my authority and my um, sort of trust will be in what, you know, seems to be the best reading of scripture. And I think that's where in this debate I come down to, I don't necessarily um, think, you know, I'm not sure it it does any good given the fact that you could take the imminent Trinity and particularly the social Trinitarianism and essentially mold it into, into, to saying mutually contradictory things on just about every every contentious topic, and and so that that doesn't mean that it's not an awesome thing to to consider and to prayerfully work through and to speculate and have books on and podcasts and all these things. But I think that the that it will be unsurprising to me. We will continue to find people reading the scriptures and, and interpreting them in different ways, and then able to extrapolate back into the imminent Trinity a defense for their position, whether that's quote unquote egalitarianism or or complementarianism or whatever the case may be. And I think that's why, at the very least, we should be cautious when putting too much weight on on things that we. Well, we haven't been given the full, we haven't been given sufficient revelation to be able to state with definitive confidence about exactly how the inner workings of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have existed from time past. And yet we have been given his His word, and that's the, the battlefield, as it were, or at least the arena within which I'm more comfortable uh, debating and sparring other people with respect to, you know, what what should we then teach as opposed to to the reality of God himself? You know, yeah, I, mean, I feel really, very very uncomfortable making I mean, really, these assertions. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if the Carl Truman's of the world are right and the ESS is is a false uh, teaching, then that doesn't really change the question when it comes to egalitarian versus that's right. complementarian. That's exactly that, right. that, that argument rests on what, what Paul actually says and what Jesus actually says about relationships between that's right. women um, and, and not necessarily in the inner life of the Trinity. Uh, so, and, and I would say basically the same thing is true when it comes in the realm of social justice. So whether there's a <laughs> critic dance or not, it, 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 we still have actual explicit, commands that's right. with regard that's right. to how to treat one another and 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 justice that's right that we have to apply regardless of whether or not those reflect the inner life of the trinity well when i said earlier that we are all three very important what i really meant was <laughs> that jd and matt are very important and have other meetings to get to so we're gonna have to wrap this episode up here even though as we've clearly just scratched the surface of 
what is a very complicated issue. Um, it is the all the time we have this week, though. We do appreciate you joining us on this episode of the pod. If you want to keep the conversation going, hope you'll be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes and send us an email to mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks, as always, to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon, and we'll be back next week, uh, Lord willing. <laughs> Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Thank you.